Hi there, and welcome to another episode of A Light Unto My Path podcast. I'm your host, Howard Sides, and today should be the conclusion of uh, this study on the true Christmas story. Uh, we're going through and pulling out uh, events ba- based on biblical record of uh, what happened, when it happened, who was there, uh, who wasn't there, what didn't happen, that sort of thing. Uh, just to give a clarification, uh, for those of you that, that have never heard this before, because uh, sometimes I, I, I talk to people uh, occasionally and, and they're really shocked, they're really surprised that things didn't happen exactly as the way we see them uh, in our nativity scene or <laughs> in some of the stories in uh, our Christmas carols. But um, as I said in episode one, uh, my intent and purpose here is not to wipe Christmas carols out altogether. No, it's not that. Uh, It's not to tear up your nativity scene by any means. Uh, We still sing the Christmas carols in our church, and I I, I enjoy them just like everybody else does. Uh, But, uh, you know, I think you should know the facts. Just know the facts and, and do with them as you will. Uh, now, we're in, again, the conclusion here. We are in Matthew chapter 2, if you want to turn there. Uh, we are, we're discussing the story in two parts. The first main part was uh, Luke chapter 2, which was Luke's story, as I called it. And now we're in the second half of it, Matthew chapter 2 and Matthew's story. And it's just taken us a little while to get through it. But uh, again, when you deal with facts, uh, you want to back it up with with uh, evidence as, as it presents itself, uh, and, and also, uh, mention the, uh, absence of evidence, I guess the way to put it, (laughs) that sort of thing. Now, we started here in Matthew chapter two with, uh, the first of two divisions, the, the wise men's journey, which is verse one through eight, the wise men's journey, verses one through eight, and we'll, Uh, ended up with the wise men's joy, uh, verses 9 through 12. The wise men's journey and the wise men's joy. Uh, Now within that, there's this first section of their journey, uh, which covers their public meeting with King Herod. Their public meeting with King Herod. And then their private meeting with King Herod. Now, considering in public they didn't really have uh, a meeting with Herod, but he heard what they were saying in public. That's kind of what it uh, gets to there. But I, you know, the acronyms, making it all fit, making it all pretty and stuff. That's kind of the way it happened. But anyway, so there's the public meeting and then the private meeting. Um, and, and in this public meeting is where we're at. Uh, we've covered the first part of it, which is the Magi's request in verses one through two. The Magi's request. Now we're going to look at the monarch's reaction in verses three through four. And we'll read that, Monarch's Reaction, verse 3 through 4. So Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, it says, When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And uh, in the last podcast, I really, um, I focused on that phrase there about he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, back in Luke chapter 2, the angel told them, hey, we have good news for you. Uh, we shall be to all people. That that was the uh, open invitation, if it will. Um, and, and, and he was basically telling them, hey, go and tell everybody uh, that you come across uh, what you've seen, uh, what you've heard, what you've witnessed. And then as the story goes down in verse 17, it says, and when they being the shepherds, had seen it, they made known abroad the same. Made known abroad. That means they told everybody they come into contact with. Now, does that mean literally? I mean, you know, if you want to nitpick that, no, maybe not everybody. Uh, they probably told 99.99% of the people they come across. I mean, think about it. Hey, God has been born in human form. He has come to this earth. Would you not tell somebody that? <laughs> I mean, really. And in verse 18, all they that heard it wondered at those things. But they didn't do anything with it. And here, when these wise men are asking about it, nobody knows a thing. It's 
it's almost uncomprehendable. I mean, such a great story as that, and nobody even knows anything about it. But in their asking, word gets back to the king that, hey, there's these wise men around town, and they're asking where some king of the Jews has just been born. Well, Herod's the king. And he's like, um, okay, I'm not that young. So obviously they're talking about somebody else. We've got a problem because this is now a threat to my rule. Okay. And again, look, these are pagan Gentile strangers. These are not some Israelites from one of the 12 tribes that had come in. These are pagan Gentile strangers. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Now, once King Herod gets wind of what is going on, he goes to the religious source of the chief priest and the scribes. Now, notice there in verse 4, it says, And when he had gathered all, when he had gathered all, <laughs> he was not taking any chances. He wanted all the information, as much as he could possibly gather. He asked him where Christ was to be born. Okay, so obviously he doesn't know. The people don't know. And it bothers them both. So he asked the chief priests and the scribes, hey, what's going on? Where, where's this kid that's supposed to be the king born? Okay, so there's the monarch's reaction. Now notice the minister's reply. Verse 5 through 6. The minister's reply. reply. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor, that shall rule my people, Israel. That is a troubling statement for a king, a sitting king. Now, the reply is that he was to be born in Bethlehem. I mean, it nails it down. He is to be born in Bethlehem. Now, one thing it makes me wonder, verse 4 he asks and demands, basically, uh, where Christ should be born. And verse 5 says, And they said unto him, and I want you to do something. I want you to look at your Bible and and put your finger right there at the beginning of verse 5 and, and look real close right above verse 5. Do you see there's a large white gap between the bottom of verse 4 and verse 5? Makes me wonder how long it took those chief priests and scribes to reply. Did they actually know right offhand and say, oh, it was in Bethlehem, and here's the scripture? I don't, I don't really think, I, in my mind, you know, of course I like to entertain crazy thoughts sometimes, but I like to think that they didn't readily know. They had to go and look it up. Now, these guys were known for knowing exactly what, you know, what was going on religiously and the prophecies and all that. So it is quite possible they readily, they just knew it right away and they quoted the scripture. But I like to think that if the people didn't know, then they weren't being taught. And if they weren't being taught, then that means the religious leaders weren't doing their job. And if they weren't doing their job and the king didn't know and the people didn't know, then at some point sooner or later, they didn't know. And I think that's more close to the truth than, than what we'd like to give them credit for. I don't think they really knew. I think they had to look it up. And and to substantiate or to make it look a little better, say, oh, well, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And it's according to this prophet. And then they quote that scripture there, uh, which is in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, which says, But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth, have been from of old, from everlasting. So, you know, I like to kind of blame it. I think it took them a little while. I don't know how long, but yeah, I think they were sweating. Okay, so there's the public meeting. Now let's look at the private meeting with King Herod, verse 7 and 8. The private meeting. Uh, then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently, diligently. That's the second time that word's used, diligently. Remember, there's no word put in the Bible just to fill in space. There's a word put there for a reason, diligently. For the young child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. All right. 
So the private meeting. Um, verse 7 tells us Herod's demand here. He called him in to a private meeting. <laughs> now, it's kind of obvious on the surface that the reason he holds a private meeting is he don't want to know a lot of people to know uh, what answers these wise men are going to have to some of the questions that he's going to ask. Because if word gets out that biblical prophecy has revealed that there is a new king on the scene, he's in trouble. And he don't want none of that. So, obviously, he makes it a private meeting. And he doesn't want a word of it to get out. And <clears throat> notice that next phrase there. It says, uh, he inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. He's wanting to nail the facts down. Uh, when did that star come out? How long ago has it been? Exactly when did you see it? Was it day? Was it night? How long did it take you to get here? And that's the key to this whole thing. That's the question we're looking at. When it concerns the story of Christmas, how do these wise men fit in? When did they get there? But as you look in Matthew's account, now remember Luke nowhere in his account of the Christmas story mentions the wise men at all. This is the only reference we have. And in the reference that we have, when you get to this verse, it says he inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. Now look over in verse 8, and what does it say? And he sent them. What? Wait a minute. There's a verse missing there somewhere. He inquired of them diligently. He wanted all the answers he could get. And are you telling me them wise men just stood there real quiet, and he just said, well, okay, go to Bethlehem. Oh, no, they had, they had an answer. Uh, these were wise men. Uh, they knew what was going on. I think they had Herod pegged before he even called him in for a private meeting. But Matthew never says what their answers are. Matthew's kind of vague in his story. He doesn't really lay all the facts down like Luke does. But, I mean, that you know, that's Matthew's writing style, and God used it for a purpose, for a reason. But in verse 8, he sends them to Bethlehem. So, <laughs> isn't it kind of odd? that he's diligently seeking the answer. And here in verse 8, we'll see it again. Uh, go and search diligently. 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 So King Herod sends the wise men on the way, but ask him, hey, when you get there, how about letting me know where you find him so that I can come and worship him too. And you can almost kind of see that one of them wise men looking at him going, yeah, right. <laughs> Just like with them shepherds, you know, one of them's like, what? <laughs> one of these wise men is like, yeah, right, sure. Now, that word diligently there is the Greek word akribos. Akribos, A-K-R-I-B-O-S. And basically, it means exactly and with clarity. Exactly. Herod's wanting to know all the details, exactly where he's at. Let me know. Come and tell me exactly where he's at in Bethlehem, what house it is. Uh, and exactly what's going on. So the intensity with which Herod asked these questions about the star, and then to not only find the child, but let him know exactly where he is, could have revealed his intentions very clearly. It doesn't take too much intelligence to realize this king feels threatened. So his interest is not in worship, but rather to kill any threat to his reign. And these are wise men. Come on, you know, I think I really think they knew before they they even got in with him. They knew something of this Herod. Herod was already known for his voracious execution of family members who threatened his reign. I mean, he killed, uh, I don't have it right here readily in front of me, but uh, he killed several of his kids, um, sons that were in line to take over the rule, and uh, one of his uh, wives or two of his wives, something like, I mean, this guy was like insane. I mean, let's just face it, he was insane, okay? <laughs> now, okay, that covers the wise men's journey. Uh, now let's look at the final section, the wise men's joy. Verses 9 down through 12, the wise men's joy. And this is divided up, uh, let's see, I put it in three sections. First section is the witness of the star in verse 9. The worship of the wise men, verse 10 and 11. And then the warning from the Lord, verse 12. So it's the witness of the star, the worship by the wise men, and the warning from the Lord. Okay, the first one, the witness of the star, verse 9. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star, which they saw in the east, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Now, I want to draw your attention to an important word there, 
we don't pay much attention to this word. It's kind of like one of them conjunction words, and, but, or. This word is the word low. L-O. Not L-O-W, but L-O. Now, the use of this tiny little word low, we understand that at some point, the star stopped shining during their journey. As to when it stopped shining, we're not told. All we know is that they saw the star in the east, and then right here, it references it again. Lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them. How could they recognize it as going before them if it didn't start shining again? Now, here's some things we can deduce from this. Okay, Jerusalem, of course, at this day and time, it was a well-known city. These wise men would have known how to get to Jerusalem. Now, the connection of uh, the star shining where it was, uh, we've already mentioned in, in, in past uh, episodes that these wise men, the Magi, uh, were very learned in astronomy and astrology. Not only the worship of the stars, but the study of the stars. And they knew how the constellations come about. There, there had been years and years and years of records before that. And when they saw this star appear in the sky, there's no doubt in my mind that they knew where it was pointing towards. As to the fact that it, where exactly it was pointing, the only reference we have is in verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Nowhere else. They came to Jerusalem. They at least knew that much. And asked the question. They knew why they were there. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? They had to know the prophecy. They had to know. How else would they have connected that son with the city of Jerusalem and a king that was born? There, there's no other explanation for it. So they had to know how to get there. They knew what that star meant. And they knew why it was there. So <clears throat> in knowing all that, let's talk about this star for a minute. Uh, in his commentary, a guy by the name of E.W. Bullinger says, and I quote, uh, he's talking about the phrase went before, where it says there the star which they saw in the east went before them. And talking about went before, quote, kept going before is imperfect. Therefore, not an astronomical phenomena, but a miraculous and divine act. Now, he's assuming that this thing just, shined for a little while in front of it and it went out and then it started again. And it's possible. We don't know. We don't know at what point it went out. We do know that it did shine in the east when they started and it started shining again when they left Jerusalem heading to uh, Bethlehem. But he's convinced, and I'm convinced, that it was not some astronomical phenomena. It, it just doesn't lay out right. It had to be. It had to be a miraculous and divine act. And I don't know what you're saying. Well, that, that yeah. listen, if God could be born in human flesh to a virgin woman, and then he can go out in the countryside and display his power and glory uh, by sending one angel first, and then a multitude of a heavenly host out there, uh, don't you think he could shine a little light in front of a couple of guys, however many there were, and guide them all the way there for as long as they needed it, and then cut it on again to pinpoint the location. That was God's own GPS system. I mean, they had it nailed down. And we'll get into just how specific it was a little bit later. Um, now, John Trapp in his commentary offers a unique view. Listen to this. Uh, he says, a, uh, quote, a star either newly created or at least wise, strangely carried for it stands one while, moves another, appears in the lower region, is not obscured by the beams of the sun, so that some have thought it was an angel. It moved slowly, as might be best for the pace and purpose of these pilgrims. An angel. Now, there's an interesting thought, because you know, in our study in the book of Revelation, uh, it gets to that where it mentions a star, a star, and it's referencing an angel. Could this star a Christmas star, be a Christmas angel? I don't know. It's a good thought. 
something to think about. Albert Barnes in his commentary, he says, From this it appears that the star was a luminous meteor, perhaps at no great distance from the ground. Now, okay, now I'm going to tell you, I kind of like Albert Barnes, but listen to what he's saying. Hey, this was just some flaming meteor that was right above the ground level. What happens to a meteor when it enters Earth's atmosphere? It's going to do one of two things. And, and here's your little science lesson, I guess. There are falling stars and there are shooting stars. And there is a difference. When you look up and you see one of them lights heading downward, that is a falling star. Why do you suppose it's falling? It's gravitational pull. If you see a shooting star, then when you look up, you see one heading up into the sky. Why do you see one heading up into the sky? Because it comes through the Earth's atmosphere and is going fast enough that either we're on a rotational point pulled upside down and it's going, out, it's going back out. Now, that don't happen often, but it's your position as to how it is. It's still falling towards the Earth. It's being sucked in. But you see a shooting star. Basically, we're upside down, and it is falling. We're just upside down. A shooting star is when we're right side up, and it's falling to the ground. <laughs> yes, yes, I understand. God could have used a luminous meteor and kept it low to the ground, but a, a screeching flaming rock at thousands of miles an hour uh, is not so much more believable than it was just a divine act. I believe more in the angel than I would a meteor, but that's just my personal opinion. That's all that is, personal opinion. Uh, okay, now I just lost that whole quote. Let me start over. Albert Barnes, and I quote, From this it appears that the star was a luminous meteor, perhaps at no great distance from the ground. It is not unlikely that they lost sight of it after they had commenced their journey from the east. I agree with that. It is probable that it appeared to them first in the direction of Jerusalem. Yeah, agree with that. They concluded that the expected king had been born and immediately commenced their journey to Jerusalem. Hmm, we'll talk about that. When they arrived there, it was important that they should be directed to the very place where he was. And the star again appeared. Okay. It was for this reason that they rejoiced. They felt assured that they were under a heavenly guidance. I think more of a divine guidance, but okay, I get the point. And would be conducted to the newborn king of the Jews. End quote. <laughs> I added little notes in there along the way, but I, I think you kind of follow that. Now, now, don't get me wrong. I do like Albert Barnes. He's got some good notes. But some things... Uh, just like I said before with any of them, you just kind of have to pick the bones out of some of them. Uh, but now let's go on to the next phrase there. <clears throat> uh, Till it came and stood over where the young child was. Okay. <laughs> Till it came and stood over where the young child was. At some point, this moving star stops moving. And when does it stop moving? When it came right over Jesus' head. <laughs> basically, or where he was laying or standing, whatever it is. Now, this statement alone gives much weight to E.W. Bullinger's comment that this was no astronomical phenomenon, but rather a miraculous and divine act. I really go for that. I, I mean, I, I get it that God could take a star and move that thing and shift it all over the earth. I get that. Um, but at the same time, I can see where it could have just been an angel. An angel, uh, I mean, you get my point? I mean, it's just my personal opinion, okay? But uh, we, we're not told. We are not told. The only assumption I can give you is that where it mentions a star here, and then in Revelation when it mentions a star, it, it's referencing an, an angel. Now, there are some stars it mentions in Revelation. when It is a the actual star. But most of those stars are symbolic of something, and it's usually an angel. Um, tune in to my lessons on Revelation, and we'll get all that information there. I don't have time to go into it here. But it also, at the same time, offers very credible evidence that as John Trapp thought, this could very well have been an actual angel. I just admitted that. Uh, Adam Clark, in his commentary, suggests that the light, being a short distance from the ground, and then surrounding the head of the child, probably gave the first idea to the ancient painters of representing Christ with a glory shining around his head, or like a halo, especially in the Roman Catholic Church. 
And then they picked it up from there and started putting around all the saints' heads and over Mary's head and over everybody they could pay enough money to, you know, anyway, leave that alone. But anyway, yeah, that's where the idea of this halo come from. So the picture here is that there's this star and we always assume that they're looking way up into the sky and there's that star way up there. That's not directional. You ever tried to drive down the road? Now, 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 don't get me wrong now. I do know that sailors do use the stars to know where they're going. But them stars are still moving and they never change in, in, in the same position every night. Now, it does move a little bit because of the rotation, you know, and the uh, constellations rotate around. Well, it's actually the Earth's rotating around, but they do move in the sky. But they can measure them. They can see. But when you're driving down in the car, driving down the road in a car, or, you know, um, going down highway number one uh, on your V8 camel, uh, you're, you're not looking straight up in the sky. Like, oh, okay, it's moved a little bit further ahead, so we got another 100 miles or so to go. <laughs> it don't work that way. This star had to be in somewhere right above the horizon or a little bit above, enough to get their attention, but in a position where they had no doubt where they were going. And then once we, they get close enough, it said it came and stood over where the young child was. Obviously, this thing moved at some point as they got from Jerusalem to Bethlehem and it appeared again. Maybe it was closer to the earth. And it led them right in front. And it gives the idea, hey, could everybody see this light? Or was it just revealed to these wise men? We don't know that. I can say the wise men saw it. I don't know who else saw it, but only the wise men could see it at, at that point. That's all we know. And it wouldn't have been very high because they're going from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And it was just high enough to, again, lead them where they were going. And it was like God's GPS. Okay, turn right on Camel Avenue. Uh, go ahead 100 feet. And turn left on Dung Hill Drive and uh, stop at the stoplight and let the lady with the basket of bread go by. Okay, keep going straight. All right, and your destination is ahead on the right. <laughs> that sort of thing. But when they get to the house, and, I, and I'm not making light of the Bible, I just like to enjoy it. I mean, man, it's, it's, it's like uh, um, you got enough problems in this world, enjoy it. Um, but it says that it stopped. So at some point they got close enough that it went in and it just stopped right over where Jesus was. And why would it do that? Because the Bible's very clear. God is very adamant in saying that he is not the author of confusion. It would have not just lit over the house. And then when they get there, they're like, well, okay, which floor is it? Um, first floor, second floor. It's the front room, the back room, side room. No, it took them right directly to I think they knew exactly. There would have been no doubt. All right. So that's the witness of the star. Now the worship by the wise men, verses 10 through 11. The worship by the wise men. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. All right. First thing to see here is they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. As Albert Barnes said in his earlier statement, this reappearance of the star gives these wise men confidence and assurance that they were being guided by heavenly or divine guidance. Left no doubt. And then the next phrase says, when they were come into the house... Notice it doesn't say a thing about a stable. It says a house. Now, this statement alone gives proof that they arrived sometime after Jesus was born. One argument given for the separation of time was the Jewish custom of a new mother being kept separated for a specific number of days due to her uncleanness. Now, it's not a bad thought of a mother, but, you know, in the act of childbirth, you know, there's blood involved and that sort of thing. Uh, so they were kept aside to be cleaned. Um, now, in Luke's account, and I, and I know because I, I read one that actually made this statement, and it said, well, that can't really be an argument because the shepherds were there. Recall what I said about the shepherds. The shepherds were considered unclean already. The fact of the Jewish law keeping someone separated from someone unclean was not that they were unclean, but that they could make you unclean. They did not touch things that were unclean. 
okay? Hence their high and mighty attitude about themselves. So here there is no mention of a stable, but rather a house. Joseph and Mary had found some place of residence shortly after Jesus' birth at some point. And you notice here it says they come and they saw the young child with Mary. No mention of Joseph. I think he was busy about working. He had a job uh, or he was going to the grocery store or something. There's nothing significant in the fact that it doesn't mention him. We already see it. Matthew's kind of vague in some of the things he says. <laughs> so kind of just lets that out there. <clears throat> All right. Another key to a timeline is that Jesus here is continually referred to as a young child and not a babe. A young child and not a babe. These are two distinct uh, age groups. A babe is a newborn. A young child um, is, I, I think it's from age two to about 12, if I read that right. I, I, it, it's a young child. It's a little bit, of, it's a toddler. But but in these verses where he's con, uh, referred to as a young child uh, happens just in this chapter alone seven times. Seven times. Verse eight, verse nine, verse 11, verse 13, verse 14, verse 20. In verse 21, it is interesting to note that the term young child is the Greek word pideon, pideon, P-A-I-D-I-O-N, pideon, which means a young child from about the age of 2 to 12. This word originates from the word pi, not P-I-E, P-A-I-S. If I'm pronouncing it right, it's not pace. I'm pretty sure of that. Pi, P-A-I-S. Now, pi stands for a boy, as in the fact that he's often beaten with impunity. Any of you that have children, <laughs> uh, unless it's a rare case, you know how boys are. They're curious. They get into everything. Mine all three were. I had one that was most particularly curious just into everything, but he had a good heart. But beaten with impunity, that, that's what it's referencing to. But it also stood for a girl in reference to a slave or servant, especially a minister to a king, a messenger. That's what it's talking about. How incredible that such a simple term as young child could describe Jesus Christ completely. And not only does it reference the fact that it describes him completely, but it mentions it in this chapter exactly seven times, which is the number of perfection. How about that? Completeness and perfection. It, words are not just thrown in the Bible. They're put there exactly perfectly. So, when exactly did the wise men arrive? That, that's basically what we're coming down to. When exactly did the wise men arrive? Again, the Bible does not give a specific time, but certain references can give us a general clue, a general idea. Again, number one is what we just talked about, the use of the term young child. Uh, number two is in verse 16. Uh, we're jumping ahead in our story here, but look at verse 16. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, <laughs> yes, he certainly was, because they were wise, uh, was exceeding wroth, and that's within his character, and sent forth and slew, that means killed, all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. That right there tells you the wise men gave him some answer. And there's that word diligently again. So what do we see here? Herod's waiting on these wise men to come back and they didn't show up. Again, there's a vagueness there. Um, I can tell you right now, if I'm a king and I'm upset that somebody is threatening my throne, I'm not going to give you a lot of time to come back and tell me something before I know something's, uh, what's the word, hinky? <laughs> something's up, Okay. But he did give them some time. I don't think it was a year. I don't think it was six months. I don't even think it was a month. Was it a week? I highly even doubt that. I think he gave them days at best. 
before they didn't show up and he knew something was going on. So what did he do? He sat down and knew when they started talking about when the star first shined. And he calculated, okay, he said, the oldest this child could possibly be is two. Now I want you to start with every baby that's two years old and younger and kill them all. I want no chances, no choice of mistake. Two years old and younger. Okay? So a general point of reference can be made that the wise men arrived to see Jesus at some point after he was circumcised at eight days old to when he was around two years of age. And I really, in my heart, believe that it was much closer to two years of age. And, and that's part of because of how far they had to go. They came a long way. All right. And we'll get into a little bit about that. So <clears throat> let's get back to our point here in verse 11. They saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. After traveling so far, and after such a diligent search, here they are, they look upon the face of the one whom they sought. Now what other reaction could there be than to fall down and worship him? How else, what else could there be? <laughs> I mean, they're going to rejoice later, but at that point, when they see the face of God, they fall down and worship. All right, the next phrase, and when they had opened their treasures. Treasures here would be the actual storage boxes or bags in which they carried their actual gifts, which are mentioned in the next phrase. So treasures here uh, is just like their treasure trunk, uh, the bags, you know, carrying bag, whatever that they're carrying the gifts, their stuff in. All right, next phrase, they presented unto him gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, this verse is where the number of three wise men comes from, associating one gift per wise man. But notice here that there are two phrases separated by a semicolon. They presented unto him gifts, semicolon, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, again, we, we kind of learned a little bit about how Matthew kind of writes like a mystery writer. Uh, while it's possible that Matthew did this to take a moment to describe what the gifts were, it can also be argued that there were other gifts, maybe not of such value, intrinsic value, because we'll see later on these three played an important role in what they were, but there could have been other gifts. There could have been rings, there could have been cups, there could have been plates, there could have been uh, anything. We don't know, but there could have been other gifts. But these were the ones that drew everybody's attention. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's the ones we know of. That's the ones that are named. Now, much has been made of the symbolic representation here that these gifts are symbolic of Jesus Christ's three attributes, that of uh, King, Christ, and Savior, and that God could have impressed upon these wise men to bring such gifts for that representation. Obviously, that could have happened. Okay. He is obviously using these wise men, and, and it's possible. But it's also noteworthy that these three gifts were prominent and considered very valuable in their region which they came from. Gifts worthy of a king. Okay? As to the true symbology of what these three gifts represent, John Trapp offers this sage advice. And I quote, uh, Lycurgus made a law that no man should be too costly or bountiful in his offering of sacrifice, lest at length he should grow weary of the charge and give God up. Ought we not often in soul to go with the wise men to Bethlehem, being directed by the star of grace, and there fall down and worship the little king, there offer the gold of charity, the frankincense of devotion, the myrrh of penitence, and then return not by cruel Herod, Herod, <laughs> and then return not by cruel Herod or troubled Jerusalem, but another way, a better way, until our long and happy home. End quote. And I think John Trapp nails it right there. It's not so important of what the gifts represent to us that it means of what Christ is, as to what the gifts represent that we bring to Christ. Now, obviously, I know we can't bring anything to Christ, but we can give him our devotion. We can give him our faith. 
We can give him our trace. We can give him our praise. There are things we can give to him. Okay, and, and that's my point I'm making there. So the, the main point here is not what they brought, but rather that they did bring. And the idea here is of an offering. And it is to give. James Kaufman in his commentary, he says, and I quote, Another outstanding teaching connected with this incident is the fact that giving is a vital and necessary part of worship. Those who worship Christ give. Those who do not or will not give do not worship either. True worship simply does not exist apart from sacrifice. It will be remembered that no ancient monarch was ever approached without a gift. And this ancient procedure is frequently noted in the sacred scriptures. Uh, and it's, it gives um, evidence here in Genesis 43, 11, 1 Samuel 10, 27, 1 Kings 10, 2. And John Trapp goes on and he says, the best, uh, and I quote, the best commodities of their country, doubtless, thereby, as by a peppercorn or trifle in way of homage or chief rent, they acknowledged Christ to be the true proprietary and Lord of all. Of the elephant, it is reported that coming to feed, the first sprig he breaks, he turns it toward heaven. Of the stork, Pliny tells us, that she offers the first fruits of her young ones to God by casting one of them out of the nest. God is content we have the benefit of his creatures, so he may have the glory of them. This is all the loan he looketh for, and for this, as he indents with us, Psalms fifty fifteen, so the saints promise in return, Genesis 28, 22. But he cannot abide that we pay this rent to a wrong landlord, whether to ourselves, as Deuteronomy eight seventeen or to our fellow creatures as they to their sweethearts, Hosea chapter 2 and verse 5. Now, I'm going to make this point right here. James Kaufman says, those who worship Christ give. Those who do not or will not give do not worship either. I am forever all the time hearing and seeing and read the advertisements for these churches offering bazaars, uh, potluck dinners, uh, rummage sales, garage sales, things of that nature. And I put to you this. I, I understand that maybe your youth group wants to do something extravagant or special. And maybe they're doing it as a service to God. Don't do it on church property. Let me say that again. Your young people may be wanting to do a service where they're taking up my money by doing car sales and, or I mean, car washes, things like that. Do not do that on church property. And I'll tell you why. Because I firmly believe this. If your members are paying, listen to me, if your members in your church are paying their tithes like they're supposed to, God's going to supply all the... What does what does David say? God is the owner of a thousand cattle on a thousand hills. Do you not think God can afford what he needs to get done? Do you think God is so poor that he's going to have to get you out there on a Saturday to sell a hot dog to make 50 cents for something he needs? I don't believe that for a minute. I do believe, just as James Kaufman said here, that there are people out there stingy enough that they're not willing to, to uh, pay their tithes. They're not willing to give an offering. And there is a difference. Tithe is 10%. Offering is above that. Yeah, that's right. I said it. Your tithes are 10%. An offering is something above that. So if you have to sell hot dogs and you've got the name of God on your church, um, I'd remove that name for as long as I have to take that money up or I'd take it up somewhere else. I will... I, I know somebody out there is going to say, yeah, but we're falling on hard times and I just really can't afford that tithe right now. I put to you, you cannot not afford it. You cannot not afford it because God will get his money one way or another. It's his money to begin with. 
He's blessing you to have the job or to have the means or the ability um, to do what you do to earn what you have. 10% is nothing, man. Come on. 10%. That's a dime out of a dollar. Think about that. A dime out of a dollar. Where we have the trouble is when we get on up and we say, okay, 10% of $1,000, that's 100 bucks. What could I do with 100 bucks? 10% of $10,000, that's $1,000. You know what I could do with $1,000? That's where we get in trouble. We start putting a value on how much we're giving God. Come on, man, don't be greedy. You're greedy, not greedy. <laughs> greedy. Okay, one more point to see here. Is that these gifts were supplied in the first place by God, just when Joseph and Mary would need them. Verse 13, read verse 13. It says, and when they were departed, that's the wise men, Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. God knew they were going to have to flee. God knew they were poor as a church mouse in the fact that they were in a manger and all they could afford was a turtle dove when they offered the sacrifice in the temple. So God brought these wise men with these extravagant gifts to give to his son. Come on. I mean, think about it. We just talked about it. He owns a thousand cattle on a thousand hills. Do you really think he's interested in your gold? You really think he's interested in your myrrh? You really think he really cares what your frankincense? Man, he owns it all already. He brought the wise men at the exact right time to bring those rich ornaments of things that are fit for a king so that they could afford this extravagant, and not extravagant, but expensive journey into Egypt. God knew they had no way of paying that on their own. God supplied their need through these costly, costly gifts supplied by the wise men at exactly the right moment. And I refer to Philippians 4.19, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. We like to add into that, God shall supply all your wants. Does not say that. God shall supply all your need. All your need according to his riches. Does he have a max on his riches? Absolutely not. Is there any way possible we could think that God could not take care of us? The Bible tells us, consider the sparrow. Uh, they neither toil nor spin. They don't worry about where they're going to sleep at night. God takes care of them. God knows everything that goes on in the world. Do you think he's not caring for you? Oh, certainly does. Okay, we're to our final point. The warning from the Lord, verse 12. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not Returned to Herod, they departed into their own country another way, being warned of God in a dream. Now, here we are. We think as Christians, we have the inside on everything God's got to reveal. We know the answer, all the answers. Yet, here are secular men, pagan men, Gentile men. And God speaks to them in a dream. God can still work in unbelievers just as well as unbelievers. I give you the example of Pharaoh. When Moses went there, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. There's another example right here in our uh, um, lesson. Uh, king Artaxerxes, a Persian king. God put it in his heart to let them go back and build Jerusalem. Now, grasp that for a moment. Here's the nation of Israel, a powerhouse. Babylon comes in and defeats them. They're a little bit stronger and powerful. God allowed that to happen. That's the only way it happened. Medo-Persia comes in, defeats Babylon, takes these Israelite uh, servants to their own lands, takes over the lands of Israel. And here God takes this king and says, you want to refortify the city? Sure, I think that's a good idea. Go back and do it. What? <laughs> Again, there's that. What? It doesn't make sense. Why would you allow an enemy to go into their territory and rebuild a fortification? Does not make any sense. Come on. Can you not see that? 
and it happens all through the Bible. There's other examples of it. That, that's the only two I've got time to give you now. So um, the next phrase, they departed into their own country another way. And I'll end with this thought. No matter what journey we take to the point where we meet Jesus Christ, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, we will always, always leave the point we meet Jesus Christ in another way. We'll be different, no matter what happens. And, and that's a great point there. We'll always leave another way. And man, there's, there's so much in this study uh, that can be found out. Um, I had no idea that this would take this long. I really didn't. I thought it'd be one lesson. I really did. And I, I just got into it and started um, reading and, and discovering things, God pointing things out. And it just kind of went where it went. But that's the way I do the lesson. I like to dig all the way to the bottom, down to the roots. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this. I, I hope you got something out of it. I, I hope it was interesting to you. Um, and I hope God blesses you, not, not for listening to me, but for studying his word. Uh, I, I really think he does take interest and takes note of people who do study his word. And I think above that, I think we should be thankful. Uh, we have so much to thank him for. Uh, it is the time of year set aside for, you know, worshiping or celebrating Christmas. Uh, and we should note that. We should thank him for what he did. I mean, think about it. A holy God created us on this earth and told us, hey, don't touch that tree. We touch the tree. Hey, you offer up these sacrifices. If you fail to worship me, I'm going to let you fall into bondage. I'm going to let you let these foreign countries come in and take you. Okay, Lord. We don't follow him. We fall into bondage. And we cry, we cry and scream, Lord, help us. Lord, help me. And what does he do? He doesn't ignore us. He comes and he helps us. Time and time and time and time again. Over and over and over again. That's his long-suffering. Of all his attributes, I think to me personally, that is my favorite one. There's grace, there's mercy, uh, there's holiness, but that long-suffering, I'm telling you, without that long-suffering, uh, we'd all be dead, and we'd all be judged, and we'd all be thrown in hell. So do we have something to be thankful for today? We absolutely, most emphatically do. Thank you, Lord, for coming to this earth and dying. God, thank you for coming in human form, human flesh, and voluntarily dying on that cross for my sins. And if it would have just been me on this earth, and I've heard this time and again, and I, I believe it to be true, if I'd have been the only one here, he'd have still come and died for me. If you were the only one here, he loved you enough, he'd have still come and died for you. For God so loved the world, and we can put our name in there, for God so loved Adam, for God so loved Betty, for God so loved Chad. For God so loved David. For God so loved Elizabeth. And you can go right on down the list of every name in the world. God so loved whoever. Uh, that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish. But have everlasting life. How can we deny that? How can we say no to that? It, it amazes me. But yet. It happens. It happens. So, okay. I'm not going to chase any more rabbits with you. I hope you enjoyed this. And I certainly thank you for listening. I hope you did get something out of it. And um, God will bless you for it. Okay. All right. Thank you for listening. Have a great and blessed day. And Merry Christmas.